Excellent. Thank you so much for that. That was helpful. The question game. That's pretty cool. I like how we're going to talk about that here in a little bit as well. But if you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to go through a passage that you probably don't hear taught that often. We're going to be in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians 3, yeah, 3, 5. 3, 5. This is going to be helpful for all of us. I think it's going to help us see Christ a little bit more clearly, and not just Christ more clearly, but also our role as missionaries is this quick little series that we're talking about the last few weeks. So I'm going to jump into verse 5, and I'm only going to read four verses, but this is Paul's word to a very young church, a church that's actually, as most scholars believe, smaller than this one. This, we are considered a small church until we get up to 400. 400 is considered a medium-sized church, believe it or not. This church in Corinth was a very small church, and it was going through a lot of changes. It was in a really difficult place with difficult people trying to do this thing called life together, and this is one of the things he said in his talk on divisions. He says, what then is Apollo's? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. All right. I don't know if you knew this or not, how much we cuss as a people, but almost 1% of every word that comes out of an American's mouth is actually a cuss word. It's actually one out of 140 words. So one out of every 140 words in North America is a cuss, swear, or foul word, okay? You could have whatever category you like to use. It actually makes it as used as first-person plural pronouns, we our, it's actually as popular, cuss words are, as those, which is fat. I know this is shocking because none of you have ever cussed before. It's not a part of your world, but it's true. This really happens. It's really used that often. It's also true that cuss words change over time, isn't it? That it evolves. Foul language evolves over time. Some phrases or words kind of rotate themselves out of usage, and then new ones are added on. In fact, any kind of time I do reading from anthropologists or cultural um, analysts, they always kind of point to social media as being the very thing that's helping us add foul language so fast. We're actually increasing at the rate in which we add foul words. Now, here, now if you remember from last week, missionaries are learners, they try to discern what's going on in this soup that we live in. So for us today, it's not real important to know that small little cultural artifact. What's important is to know why. Why do we cuss so much? Why do we use foul language so much? Why do we swear so much? Why do you think? I mean, just think about it for a second. What is the why? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think we love provocative messages. I think we love radical speech. I think we love to say words that have punch and impact. I mean, it's one thing to say a phrase or a word, but if you can underline it and highlight it by adding a swear word before or after, then it's easy to do that because it just kind of gives it more relevance, although that's what it feels like, right? We love to speak in hyperbole. We love to exaggerate. We love superlatives. There's something deep in all of us that loves to bring radical news. 
I would argue, and maybe get to do it in another sermon, that I think the reason that we love radical, provocative news is because it's part of God stamping us. I think when we are made in God's image, I think part of that is just this desire to tell people something new, something radical, something huge and epic. I think we love to be the first people to break a story to somebody, just to see the look on their face. Don't you love that? When you get to be the person to tell somebody radical news. I mean, kids fight over that, don't they? Don't kids just fight over who gets to tell mom and dad that thing that happened at that one time? And I love being around my friends and then hearing that they never have heard a story that I love to tell. I just shift gears. I turn into a storyteller like that. I'm like, you mean to tell me you have not heard about that time at that place? And I just get excited. Why? Because I'm carrying something that I feel like is radical and provocative, and I can't wait to see the look on their face whenever I tell that story. You know, as we go through this series called Identity Crisis, we've been talking about how missions is not something we do. It's more someone we are. We are a missionary that is more an identity than an activity that we do. And we've talked about how missionaries are people that learn their community, There are people that swim in the context of their community. There are people that travel to different groups. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about how a missionary brings provocative news to the world and how that's a piece of who we are as missionaries. So I want to talk about the missionary as the evangelist. Don't let that word stress you out because it can do that, can it? Evangelist? That word can stress us all out. I remember the very first class I ever took as a Christian at a church, I think I was 22, and it was called Evangelism Explosion. Explosion, right? Some of you know about this class because you've taken it. It's definitely been around for a really long time. It's a historic class taught by Dr. James Kennedy. It comes in a binder about this thick, and the whole idea behind Evangelism Explosion is to teach you how to be fluent in the gospel, particularly with people that you don't know, right? So it's just teaching, it's giving you the vocabulary, the vernacular of how to bring someone to a faith and trusting knowledge in Jesus. And now, what gave me sweaty palms in this class was not the idea of memorizing scripture. In fact, the very first passages of the Bible I ever memorized in my life were because of that class. That's how I knew in the Lord. I was like two and a half weeks old in, in Jesus when I took this. Memorizing the scripture was not stressful to me. The fact that I knew I was going to have to go to the mall at the end of the class and just cold call straight up, walk up to somebody on a bench and try to get them to a place where they say, oh my God, what must I do to be saved to do that? Now that was stressing me out. That was putting me in a place of just thinking, I don't know if I can do this. We'd go to hospitals. We would go to restaurants. We'd go to the park. It was just part of the class. So stressed out. I felt like like if you're trying to cut a steak with a spoon, you know? I mean, you'll get there eventually, but there's better ways to cut the steak. I didn't understand this thing of actually getting to know the people and getting to hear their heart and their story before you begin to apply something like the gospel. And so I think for some of you to be less stressed out about the word evangelist, we might have to just look at where that word came from. So when Paul is telling Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, how did Timothy hear that word? How did he hear that? How did Paul understand it when he said the word? This is what an evangelist might have looked like back then. You know, before the wide use of radios, runners would be the ones that would carry messages from A to B. 
So this was particularly effective in times of war, wartime couriers, okay? This is fascinating to me, this little piece of history. There really was no technology that can do better than a human runner, not even horses. I mean, horses are fast, but they'd have to be traded out. They've got to eat. They are exhausted. The heat was a problem. And in some parts of the ancient world, the topography was way too rocky to even think about bringing a horse, so humans win. Humans were the fastest way to get an important provocative message from A to B. We see this most clearly in history in the ancient Mediterranean, particularly Greece. Greece was known as a country that would take runners, select runners, and build an elite corps of soldier, a certain type of soldier, right? They were called the hemrodromos. The hemrodromos, that, just, that word means all-day runner. They were trained to run covering distances of over 100 miles a day with zero notice. Zero notice. And they, they didn't carry anything with them either. Maybe a little, but they could fit in a hand, but they were grazing off the land as they ran, and they were fast. Let me just put this into context for you. Most endurance athletes today that attempt to do a race over 100 miles, they have to train two or three years to do this. They have to train two or three years. They'll consume... 40 or 50, sometimes up to 60 of those cool little foil gels that you see at REI, you know, those things that have been designed in a lab just to keep you going for 42 extra minutes. They'd have to have almost 60 of those. That's over three boxes of those. They'll burn somewhere between 15,000 and 18,000 calories, and it will take them over one month to recover. For these guys, it was Tuesday at the office, the hemorrhodromos. And the best were the kids. Nine years up to 18 years of age, that's where they were the fastest. They were really fast. They could go a long distance. And some of them were known to cover over 150 miles in under 24 hours, which is fascinating to me. Now, Pheidippides was one of these elite runners. You've probably heard that name before, right? If you're any a fan of history or maybe if you've been in their church for a little while, you've probably heard this name thrown around. He is a real figure, but he has a mythological story attached to him. Some of the details of Pheidippides' life is actually probably a little bit more fantasy and myth than it is true. But as the story goes, what we do know is when Greece was fighting Persia, and they're on the plains of Marathon, right? The plains of Marathon, Marathon means fennel back then, so they were just fields of fennel. But the Persians were about to invade, Greece had to defend Athens, its capital, and they needed to get Sparta involved in this whole thing. They needed to loop Sparta in, so they sent Pheidippides to run all the way out there, try to recruit, and run all the way back. It only took him about three days, it was 280 miles. Round trip, he did it in 280 miles. And when he got back, he didn't find a space-age foil blanket with a banana and a cool little trophy waiting for him. He actually got there, literally pulled his sword out and started fighting alongside the Greeks. Now, when it was over, he actually ran from the plains of Marathon all the way to Athens to tell everybody, rejoice for victory is ours. Rejoice for victory is ours. Myth has it that he dropped dead right there on the spot, right? The distance between Marathon and Athens, 25 miles. This is where we get the Marathon. The British screwed it up later by adding an extra mile onto it. That's a different story to tell altogether. But 25 miles. Now later, bullets would come about in warfare, and couriers would have to run from trench to trench and from front to front carrying messages, and many were shot. To be a wartime carrier was one of the most dangerous positions you could have in the military. Why? 
Because the message you're carrying is actually more valuable than the life that you live. I mean, what made message carrying such a dangerous occupation was the value and the provocativeness of the message. This is what I want you to keep in the back of your mind whenever you hear the word evangelist. That's what I want you to be thinking about. Because the Hebrew roots to that word, the Greek understructure to that word, will point back to a person, an evangelist, a person who announces good tidings, publishes good news. It sounds a little bit like the harvest is plentiful this year. Or it sounds like a king has been born to us. Or, or rejoice for victory is ours. It could be victory over another army in a battle. Pheidippides would have been considered an evangelist. That wouldn't have been weird had anyone said that back in the day. So, as he says, rejoice for we have won, he is simply publishing provocative news that others would have been excited to hear, especially in a city like Athens where they were just waiting on pins and needles to find out what was going to happen. For all they know, Persia overran Greece, and then they're about to lose all their women, children, and their finest men. That's what's about to happen. They're waiting to see how a battle turns out so they know how it affects them. Now, I think we've probably strip-mined the word evangelist a little bit to mean the sketchy guy that's preaching on the corner of Gay and Clinch, or the person that goes from revival to revival, right? Also kind of sketch sometimes, but also an uber-personality. Or, if we're thinking on a good term, we're thinking about someone who is so intensely gifted that they just keep closing the deal everywhere they go. They sneeze, people get radically saved, and that's just how, they're, they're like the uber-Christian. It's like there's the gifted people, and then there's the evangelist, right? That's not really it. That's not really the best way to understand. In fact, that's a misunderstanding. And that's why we say to each other or say to leadership, I'm not an evangelist. I'm just a, what, normal Christian. Friends, I mean, I hope you've seen over the last two or three weeks, there really is no such thing. It's just a normal Christian. You're an evangelist. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. It's part of your identity. Like son or daughter or slave or ambassador, missionary is just part of who you are. Evangelism is just what a missionary does, is they are wartime couriers. Now, you might be gifted to do this. You might just be adequate. You might be obedient. You might really struggle here, but you are one. And now some of you can already feel the pressure now, can't you, now that I've said that. Now that I've said that you are an evangelist, you probably already feel the shame mounting on the shoulders, right? Looking back on your hard drive to your resume to see the lack of people that you have quote-unquote saved. If you're normal, that's what you're thinking. But saving people is not the work of an evangelist. That's the work of God. It's the work of God. An evangelist delivers provocative news. The news does the work. The newsmaker does the work. The evangelist just delivers the mail. We're just couriers. We just publish good tidings. The message and the message maker, those are the heavy lifters. The courier just delivers. Now, some of you are, in fact, gifted for this kind of ministry, but we're all to do the work of an evangelist. This is what Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So praying with people who are bawling and makeups everywhere, praying over them and then baptizing them in some body of water, that does not make you a successful evangelist. Being faithful to carry a message makes you a successful evangelist. Just carrying the message 
makes you a successful evangelist. It's not saving people. That's God's work. That's, those are boulders only the Holy Spirit pushes around. Not you. I think this is important for us. I think this is important for how we are evangelists. Just the posture it puts us in. Look at Romans 1.16. Paul again says to another church, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So it's the gospel message that has the power to save people. It, it's, it's just, and I remember how it was for me. Wake up on Wednesday, don't really give a rip about anything. I have a heart of stone. You could prick it, it's not going to bleed. You could preach to it, it's not really going to hear. I mean, it hears, but it's not hearing. And then one day, the next day, I could hear. God had taken a heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in. We call this regeneration. And now when I hear the gospel, I'm able to feel. I'm able to, to trust in it. I'm able to have faith in it. And it is the power of God given that allows me to respond in this way. Again, I think this is important because some of us, I think, feel condemned because for all of our preaching, we see no fruit. No fruit. Now, when I say condemned, I'm not saying convicted. Again, it's always important to build a distinction between those. Conviction is the Holy Spirit telling you what you're doing is wrong. Condemnation is the enemy telling you that you are wrong. Just simply, you are wrong. Everything about you. And I think some of us have a, a condemnation that kind of follows us because we look back and we see no fruit. I have a lot of people that we've baptized. Don't have a lot of people that we've cried with and they've begged God to save them. Maybe you can improve in your fluency. Maybe your communication skills can grow. Maybe you can be a better listener. I mean, we all are called to grow. That's true. And maybe, like we read earlier, you're just sowing and watering seeds. You're just dropping seeds and you're watering them. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 again. Hear it now with different ears. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Right? So we see who's giving the growth. It's God. You're not a deal closer. God's the deal closer. He's the one that's doing it. All you're doing is carrying a message, a provocative one, certainly, a radical one, absolutely, but you're just bringing it to bear. You're bringing it to somebody, and the Holy Spirit takes what you've said, and the Holy Spirit takes their heart and their ears, and something beautiful happens that only God can do, only his surgical hands can perform. I know this for a fact because the person that preached the gospel to me, the night I got radically born again, and when I say born again, it was radical for me, they weren't even talking about this stuff. They weren't talking about the cross and the blood and the empty tomb. They, weren't they were just talking about spiritual things. And then the Holy Spirit moved on me, and I could not wait for that guy to quit preaching so I can go up and get radically saved. Just somebody, and I was probably already saved right there in the seat. God probably already radically did it, but I just needed someone to pray with me. I didn't know what to do with all the feelings swimming around. I, I just felt like something needed to happen, something needed to change. I just needed someone to tell me everything was okay and pray with me. So I know it's the Holy Spirit doing it because of the, what the Word says for sure, and then I have felt it. So we have the same provocative news that Pheidippides really did. 
We carry a message to a different city of people, certainly, but also a city of people who did not contribute to the battle, but they still get the spoil of it. Did you ever think about that? I mean, the only thing we really contribute to the whole formula is our need. The best part about our gospel story is our inability to save ourselves. That's the best part. That's what's the funnest to tell. This is how Tim Keller says it. He says, the good message that we carry is not that we amass a good record, give it to God, and then he saves us. Instead, the good message we carry in our lungs, that's us, evangelists, wartime couriers, is that Jesus amassed a perfect record, and when we believe in him, he gives it to us. It's flipped. It's flipped. And friends, listen, I don't just need this kind of good news to become a Christian. I need this good news as a Christian. Not just that one night in 1996. I need it every single day. We gospel those who are far from Christ. Hear me, we gospel those who are close to Christ. If they have ears, we gospel them. If they have ears, we evangelize them, both those who are searching and skeptical and those who are deep in our DNA community with us. We do both. This is a better understanding of evangelism. This is a healthier understanding of what evangelism is and is not. It's not just what a church does to those who are far from Jesus. It's what broken and needy people in the church do to each other as well. This is why friendships can get especially deep. And if you have good functional relationships or you are building them now, and we can all agree that takes a while, right? But as you're doing something like that, you will start to see where your friend or spouse or kids don't believe this gospel, this good news. They don't believe it. And so what do we do? We remind them. We preach and apply the gospel to their lives. And the relationships get deeper and deeper and deeper. My best friends, they know where I don't believe the gospel they know where I believe it's not good enough. It's not graceful enough. It's not, it's not in control. It's not grand. They know where I struggle with that. My wife knows it. And they faithfully preach to that. So if this is a better understanding of evangelism, why is a global church so quiet? And why do you feel so guilty and condemned whenever someone talks about it? Like you're being unfaithful in something. Like you're totally not beautiful to God anymore because this is something you've decided you've struggled with, right? I think for that answer, we're going to need to turn to a different passage, and this one's in 1 John. 1 John's a great book. If you're a young Christian, I would send you here. Usually when I talk to new believers, John and 1 John are the two books I think have been most helpful for a lot. Um, but in 1 John 2, I'm going to jump up to verse 15. I'm only going to read two verses. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, this might look like an odd place to take a peek at evangelism and evangelistic failure, but it's going to be helpful for you and me because John is juxtaposing two loves right here, right? He's not telling you to not care for the world, by the way, just to get that out there. He's not saying don't love the people in the world. He's saying don't adore the value system that the world has chosen to adore. The things that it applauds, you should be applauding different things. The things that it has given itself to won't be the same for you. He's talking about a value system, a cultural framework, and he's saying that is opposed to God. 
Now here's our sticky situation, you and me, as we read a passage like this. We actually do desire the things of the world. We do. I mean, think about it. Our heart, our hearts want those things. If sin wasn't lovely and desirable, we wouldn't desire and think it's lovely. We wouldn't chase after those things. It has an attraction to us. That's why we gravitate towards those things. That's why we are informed by the values of the world, right? So whenever we feel that gravitational pull towards the love of the world, the pride, the lusts of the world, the things that the world says is beautiful, whenever we feel ourselves being tugged that way, we usually try two quick maneuvers to get ourselves back or get ourselves away from something like that. One is just to reason with ourselves about the sin or apply rules to the sin. Reason or rules, that's what we do. We're not very complicated people. We try to reason with ourselves just by saying, that sin is dumb and it's gonna hurt me. Why would I do it? Logically, it doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna stay away from that because it's just going to be hurtful and it just looks dumb. But we don't use reason and logic when we chase after the things of the world, do we? We use our heart. We use our heart. We do it with our hearts. The intellect just simply isn't strong enough to contend with the human heart. <laughs> this is why smart people sin. <laughs> The intellect's not strong enough. Ask Solomon, smartest guy who ever walked besides Christ on this planet. Ask him. He has multiple pagan wives. He knew that wasn't a good idea. And he knew he had to reason with himself through that a little bit. Multiple pagan wives. I don't know that that's a good thing. That's a cultural thing. That's what other dumb kings do. But if I do that, that'll be dumb. It's not logical to do that. And yet he does it. Why? because he wanted to. That's it. His heart wanted to. So sin is not a matter of failed logic. It's a matter of misplaced affections. We drop our affections in the wrong place. People sin all the time when they know it's wrong. In the heat of the moment, the human heart is going to get what the human heart wants. Think about the things like adultery and envy. Those aren't calculated in a vacuum. Those aren't decided to or not to based on logic and reason. By passion. So John comes by and he kind of puts some language to it for us. He says to love God is to not love the world and to love the world is to not love God. So we can't give reason and rules to this. So how do you and I resist that gravitational pull? It's a very simple answer. We have to be swerved by another gravitational pull that is a little bit stronger. Something that pulls us into a different orbit. You see, you cannot decrease the pull of the world without an increase for your love for God. The more you love God, the less you will love sin and the value system of this world. The more you love God, the more you will rest in his approval, and the more you will be able to withstand the pressure brought to bear by peers and all the trophies and all the rewards society could hand out. If I said it a different way, we will only not love the world to the degree that we do love God. It's a converse relationship. The mathematics is actually very simple. It's not complicated. John spells it out for us. I mean, consider for some of you the fact that you have the same sin that keeps trapping you. Some of us in this room, we, we have the same sin that keeps showing up in our lives. And Don't we just convince ourselves that if I could just get rid of that one or two sins, then I'd be like 80% cleaner. I mean, do you think like that? I know a lot of people, if I could just get rid of my anger, if I could just get rid of my lust, if I could just get rid of my, my chronic anxiety, if I could just get rid of some of these things, I'll be like 80% down the road. 
I mean, the rest is just fine-tuning after that. Why are those things a struggle for you? Because they're convincing you and me that they are going to give you something. They're convincing you and me that they're going to give us something that God simply cannot provide. And so we keep chasing after it. We keep trusting it. And this is not a logic problem. It's a love problem. Adding rules isn't going to fix your heart's direction. Reasoning is not going to work either. So now what does that have to do with evangelism? Right? This is what it has to do with it. Our silence is actually the product of adoring and requiring and demanding the approval of mankind. We have to have it. And that's going to silence us. It's going to put a muzzle on every gospel carrier. But the fascinated gospel communicator is someone who is satisfied with God beyond all other loves. Right? And we're pointing people broken around us, needy around us, to a better object of their affection, but we're doing it as a people that really believe it ourselves as well. You see, when you've been captured by Christ and all of his stunning beauty, and when you've been convinced and you're resolved by the cross and the empty tomb, when these things are true for you and you've been one at a deep emotional level, then you have what you need to be a courageous gospeler and a communicator. But a person who is in love with the world system, a person who is in love with the value system of the world will require applause, will require adoration, and therefore will not be able to carry a message as provocative as this. Because it just recruits rejection and loss. And we know that. That's why my palms were sweaty sitting in that class. Because I knew I was going to roll up on some guy just there at the mall shopping with his wife, kids running around, and I was about to tell him something that he didn't want to hear. I was about to talk to him about something he didn't, he didn't ask for me to talk to him about. And it made me nervous. Because in my mind, I know he's not going to like me as much, even though I don't even know the guy's name. He's not going to approve of me. I don't get any social high fives in that. And it makes us nervous. Super nervous. So what is the answer? The answer. What we desperately need is a realigned affection. There's an old Scottish pastor back in the 1800s. His name is Thomas Chalmers. He wrote an article about this. It's called The Power of an Expulsive Affection. It's an, so you can find it anywhere online. It's a great read. But this is an affection that resets and redefines all of our other affections. All the affections we have in this world redefined, repositioned. An affection that takes center stage. It's an affection that won't be crowded out or competed with. You see, there is room to repent for us as a church, as gospelers, as evangelists. We need to repent. Maybe not as much for being silent, but for the things we've joined our hearts to. The things that we've called sufficient. We need to beg the Holy Spirit for a responsive heart, a wrecked heart, a captivated heart, a ruined heart, an affection, an expulsive affection. But it's a dangerous prayer. I mean, if you pray a prayer like that, asking God to ruin you for anything that is not him, if you ask God to give you a deepening clarity of who he is that chokes out all the other affections, that starts to redefine all the other you need to know you're recruiting loss and you're recruiting a rejection. You're asking for it. You're going to feel it. You'll also get more God. You'll also get more God. So, listen, if evangelism scares you, it's because you feel like you have a lot to lose here. 
If evangelism scares you, it's because you feel like you have a lot to lose here. You're still convinced that the values of this world will satisfy you. So that's why we make room for them. We nurture those affections. We protect those affections. That's why evangelism scares us. It threatens those things. You see, this sermon is not about getting good at evangelism. It's to help you diagnose why you're silent. Right? But here's the good news, my favorite news, in something like this. Jesus adores silent missionaries as much as he adores very productive and vocal ones. If you struggle with evangelism, you're perfect for Jesus, and he's perfect for you. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that. Because condemnation can start creeping on us when this topic is brought up, and it's unnecessary. It's unwarranted. It's unwarranted. There's no punishment for you if you have failed or if you have just been disobedient with evangel. There's no punishment for you. We know that because Jesus drank the full cup of punishment from God's wrath. He took it for us. There's none left for us as a church. There's none left. In fact, if you struggle with condemnation and you feel like you are less than, you are unlovable, you're unapprovable because of your silence, it's proof that you still struggle with the total story of the gospel and how beautiful it really is. You really do need a deeper way of seeing it. You see, you're free to fail here and not lose God's affection. I really hope you hear that, but I also hope you hear that you are also free to abandon the love of the world for a better affection. You're free to do both. If you're convicted because of what the Holy Spirit is saying, let it not be because you don't evangelize, but because something else has stolen your heart and has muted you. And listen, there, there is a lot of application. There are classes full of application to help a church grow as a church of evangelists. But as you share the story of God, I will give you one quick one, okay? Just one quick point of application maybe you can remember and walk out of here with. And that's when you share the gospel with people that you know, make sure to your ability that it is understandable, comprehensible, and makes sense to them. Make sure they know what you're talking about. You see, some of the struggle with cold call evangelism, just walking up to people and preaching the gospel, you're talking right past them. You don't know their story. I mean, you know how different it's going to sound whether they've been sexually abused as a kid or not? I mean, or whether they are, um, they, maybe they came out of a cult or who knows all the different possibilities of what makes that person up. You might be speaking right past them and they might be speaking right past you. It's very likely you're answering questions they're not even asking. It's important to know who they are. You don't have to spend 19 years with them to figure that out. It could be 19 minutes, but it is important to know who the person is that you're talking to. Do you know them well enough to retell their story within the story of God? Do you know their story from its origin to where they sit before you in that moment to be able to retell their story as it finds its place in God's great story? that they see that they're part of the fabric of something much bigger than them and their big bag of problems? And do you know them well enough to speak directly to their experiences so that they see you as credible and trustworthy? Do you have the courage to do that? Have you ever taken a chance? Do you know the idols in their life? Can you see how those idols keep stealing from them? Boy, that one's important. How those idols aren't saving them but how they just keep biting the bait. You know, we have a couple blogs on our website right on the front page. One of them I pointed to last week, and that is, do you understand your city? What is your city saying? We looked at that as contextual missionaries or learning missionaries. 
But today, uh, there's another one on there. It says, do you even know your, your friend? Are you really friends? And it's just a good 12 or 15 questions. You could just put the name of one of your friends in there, and you'll realize how quickly you might not know the whole story of your friend. You might not even be able to write a paragraph on what makes them who they are. It's helpful to go through exercises like that. The question game that Kimmy brought up earlier, it's, it's a variation of this very thing. What makes them tick? What are their hopes? What has formed those hopes? What kind of pain did they come from? What kind of pain are they carrying right now? That, that influences, informs how we bring the gospel to them. It doesn't change the story of the gospel at all. The gospel is the gospel, but it informs how we carry it to them. And then listen, after you're done telling that story, if they don't break down in tears, you have not failed. You might have planted you're very likely watering. You're doing something. You're sowing or you're watering. You're sowing or you're watering. You can be restful in that. You're not responsible for how they respond. You're just responsible to carry the message in the best way that you possibly can. You know, I'm convinced that after, in the end of all ends, when we're talking to Jesus face to face and he's talking to us face to face and we have this beautiful moment, I'm convinced that we will all learn that the best evangelists in the world, you won't know their names. You won't, you've never heard of them. They'll be buried somewhere on this broken planet, probably don't even have a headstone, forgotten by history. But they were really good at planting, really good at sowing, really good at planting really good at sewing. And I'll just say this, if you're in here and you're still searching for something like Jesus, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you know that you are far from Jesus, maybe you're not sure what kind of relationship you have with Jesus, it's important that you know that he is not just a message carrier, he is the message as well. He's the better hemorrhodromos, but he also is the essence of his very own message. And he is the one that says to you and me, rejoice for we have won. Rejoice for there is victory. And this victory that Jesus announces to you and to me is the one over death itself. It's over shame. It's over perversion. It's over loneliness, fear. It's over anxiety. It's over betrayal. Everything that is disgusting in this world and broken in this world is overturned. And this is very, very, very good news for us. It's very good news. So yeah, turn from the sin you're committing, certainly. But also turn from adoring a value system of a broken world around you. Because let's just face it, it's never given you what it promised it would. I mean, that's the typical shtick for an idol. It promises and it underdelivers. It never gives you what, you what you thought it was gonna give you. It always promises, it never delivers. Here's the thing, it's never going to. It's never gonna give you what you think it's gonna give you. We went through this as a church when we looked at money and sex and power and comfort and security and applause and adoration and everything that the world says, if you get this thing, you will have heaven on earth, and it never delivers. And what I would say both to those who are in here who are the church and those in here who are looking from the outside, looking in and wondering with a bunch of questions, I would say that we all have the same application, which is to ask the Holy Spirit to bring us an affection and grant us a view of how beautiful God is. To ask for a deepening understanding of that. That's how you love God more, by the way. 
If you've ever wondered, how do I love God more? How do I love something I don't love? How do I fall more in love with someone that I'm just not that in love with? Ask him to grant you vision of who he is and what he has done for you. Ask him to become more clear. Ask for more trust. Ask for more faith. And then ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the things that are cluttering up your path. What part of the world's value system has really got your eye? Where is that really a struggle for you? Ask God for the ability to see clearly. All right, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to jump out of this sermon and just say that as Matt had said earlier, before the, before the whole service started, we're about to have a moment, three or four songs, where you have opportunities to respond. I mean, obviously, you can respond through singing, right? So there'll be singing, you can do that. We have communion elements in the back, so if you are a part of God's church, even if you're not a part of Legacy Church, we just invite you to take part in God's communion. If you're a searcher, or you're not a Christian, or you are pretty sure that you're just here looking, we would ask that you don't take communion. That's something that is specially designated for the church, but we would ask you to take Jesus instead, and we'd love to talk to you if that's a conversation you'd like to have. We'd love to help you kind of sort through all the knots of that, because I know how naughty it can get sometimes. How, how hard it could be to see through a lot of the questions. But I will say when it comes to the elements back there, the bread that symbolizes a broken body and the juice that symbolizes spilled blood, that is what makes our message so provocative. I mean, it's a broken body. It's a murdered Savior. If Jesus wasn't destroyed on the cross, then our sins would have never been lifted, and we really have no reason to have the hope that we have. What makes our news radical in a time of war as we are wartime carriers is symbolized by that very table. So when we take it, we take it in remembrance of that. So you can take communion as you respond. Challenge you to pray as you respond. As you give of your, your treasures, as you tithe or give money or whatever you, you're used to calling it that that would be a form of response, that you reconcile with people in the room that you might struggle with, that that would be a form of response. And then one that's specific to this series that we have designated is this book over here. We're up to 16 pages now of names. And what we've done is challenged you to write names of people in there in your spheres, whether it's family or friends or workmates or neighbors or whoever it might be, that you really are trusting and hoping that God will reach with his message. Whether you're the evangelist that does it, someone in this room is an evangelist that does it, or someone outside of this room, that somebody carries a message to this person or these people in such a way that they have a radical, trusting faith and that they fall passionately in love with Jesus and make disciples all their life. So what I want you to do is take the step of trust and just write their name in that book. It's not the book of life or anything, but wouldn't it be cool if it matched up pretty closely? I mean, is that not what we're hoping for? So write names down in there because what I'm doing is, is we're praying over that. We'll have a pastor's meeting today. We'll take that. We'll pray over the book in the pastor's meeting. So this is something that we're taking serious because one day... Whenever your friend or family member or neighbor gets radically born again and starts being discipled and starts discipling others, can't wait to show them their name in this book. That'll be cool. So let me pray for you, and then we'll go ahead and sing. So, Father, we thank you for being so sweet and so kind to us that you did not just carry a message to us, and you did. At a great cost, you carried a message to us. But, Lord, also that you are the message 
And that, and that we didn't do anything. I, I can imagine myself being like one of those Athenians, just waiting on pins and needles. I don't have anything to contribute but just big need. And then I get this message from a carrier of a provocative set of news that says, rejoice for we have won. Rejoice, victory is ours. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given your church victory over death, that you've given your church victory over shame. You've given us victory over pervasive addictions and sins. You've given us victory. We're free. We're free because of something you did. Because of something you did. That great catalog of deeds that you did, this amassed life has handed to us and we have been called clean. So we thank you. We thank you and then we have a lot to repent for, for our silence, but not just for our silence, the sin underneath the sin that I have to repent for, Father, is that that world value system, it looks so attractive. It's so easy to want the applause and the adoration of mankind, to want the power that comes, to want the security that comes, the, the comfort, the trophies of this place, to desire them so strongly that we're just not satisfied in you. And I know that as I grow more and more in love with this place, I grow less and less in love with you. But I also know, Father, that we and we as a church, we grow more and more in love with you. It's an expulsive affection, and we have no more room in our heart for this place where we are just aliens and foreigners and sojourners. So Lord, help us today. Help us praise you. Help us repent. And then Lord, I guess my last request is that you give us a grander vision of who you are. I want to love you more. I know we, we as a church, we want to love you more. Give us a view, deeper view of who you are, what you've done, what we mean to you. Lord, we thank you for being precious to us and so sweet and kind. We thank you in this time of worship. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.